Faith and Fable, a pastoral podcast where we discuss common and often controversial topics from a biblical perspective. I'm Mark. I'm Matt Henry. I'm Matt Miller. And I'm Lena. So we're going to talk about kinds of theology, right? Kinds of theology, yeah. So we want to do this because we're passionate about theology and and not just because we're interested in thinking thoughts, um, but because we really do believe that these thoughts inform and fill out uh, a deeper worship for us. Uh, but as pastors, we're also passionate that any layperson also be passionate about theology. Um, and so as a result, we often will recommend books, we recommend articles. Uh, we use a lot of terms in our sermons and our podcasts. And so sometimes we just throw out words and phrases that carry a freight load of meaning. Um, in fact, there's entire disciplines in areas of study bound up in a single word sometimes. Um, and so we thought it'd be good to just talk about different kinds of theology that's out there and what's meant by certain terms and theological disciplines. And so when you use the term theology, many will just simply think of something like a systematic theology. So common today, they'll think of, you know, Wayne Grudem's systematic theology or uh, Burkhoff systematics or something. Um, but systematic theology is simply one kind of theology. It's right. just one discipline that's out there. And there are many kinds of theology that are out there and they all mean something different. And there are certain goals and purposes behind each one of these disciplines. And so we just want to give a brief survey here of and all the different kinds. It's helpful uh, if you understand what you're reading. Um, is that a biblical theology, a systematic theology? What What's going on here? So yeah, the first two I think are, are we're going to be kind of full because they're the most common. Yeah. Uh, but then it'll go a little bit quicker. The first is most common, uh, systematic theology. When people think uh, theology, that's what they think of. Um, and Grudem has a good definition. He says, any study that answers the question, what does the whole Bible teach us today about any given topic? Now, yeah. that works. Right. Um, so, first of all, it focuses on the fact that systematic theology is interested in what the entire Bible has to say about any given now, I'm going to use a key word, though, topic right. versus term, mm -hmm. and, and we'll explain why in a bit. So, it's attempting to create a system, which is why it's called systematic, <laughs> right. uh, a system of understanding or system of thought, but based upon everything the Bible says about any given topic. So, systematic theology begins with the Bible, um, and that so any decent systematic theology will always start with the bibliology. Yeah. Here's our doctrine of the Bible. Then we'll, it will pull, though, and this is something people don't always understand, it will pull from other types of dis, uh, disciplines, um, philosophy, uh, reason, logic, mm -hmm. history, science even. Yeah. And so when you look Absolutely. at a systematic theology, you go to like Hodge. Hodge is systematic. That was the very first one I bought and read. Really? Yeah, yeah. Well, it looked cool on my shelf and I didn't know squat. <laughs> so um, I bought it and... Charles that, or AA? Charles. Okay. And and then I found a guy named Augustus Strong. Didn't know who he was, uh, but turned out he was a Baptist theologian. Um, and when I was reading his, there were things he was going on and on about. And I'm like, man, he's making a big deal of it. But I found out later on that in the systematic theology, it is also being written to the day. 
the, yeah. to- the day that he's writing. Yeah. So what is the topic of the day and what are the controversies? And so when you get, you should own several theologies because the old ones are dealing with old controversies and the newer ones are dealing with the modern controversy. So you'll never find in Hodge issues of homosexuality, yeah. gender issues, things like that. But the new ones that are coming out are starting to address those because they have to. Uh, our society and our world we live in, yeah. they're hot topics. Um, but the controlling point is going to be the Bible still. So From a good systematic theology. Right, right, right. So you'll never find, though, the word Trinity in the Bible. In fact, some people actually say, so we shouldn't believe in it because it's not a biblical term. But systematic theology is not trying to deal with the terms. Um, the doctrine of Trinity is a system of thought, though, through which we can talk about and understand God's nature, which is why we did, what, 14,000 episodes on the right. nature of the Trinity. So, so throughout the scripture, we are able to see that God revealed himself as a Trinitarian reality or a person. Uh, the, the word Trinity, even though it's not used, doesn't matter. All, all we're doing then is pulling together all these different ways God has revealed himself in the Bible as a father, the son, and the spirit. And then we develop this comprehensive system of understandings. So the result of seeing God as father, son, and spirit is the conclusion that God is one, yet three. But that's a systematic idea. Yeah, which involves things, again, like philosophy. Because yeah. we're talking about ontology. I mean, that's a philosophical term. Yeah. Right? You're never going to find that in the scriptures. Yeah. But we have to talk about it that way. And then make a distinction, though, between the economy of the Trinity. Right. The way God works himself out. And, but in all of that, it's not like we're just philosophically talking about it. It's all being grounded within what, Developed out of the scriptures. Yeah, the scriptures yeah. saying these things. Now, how do we... What do we do with all of this data? Yeah. Uh, another one um, that was a hot topic in the 60s uh, when I was growing up, um, the words infallible or inerrant. Um, again, we've developed a certain system through which we understand the nature of what Scripture is, and we say that we believe in the infallible, inerrant Word of God. But these, again, are not biblical terms, but they're, they are biblical concepts. Right. So we're looking at all the ways the Bible talks about itself. And then we develop this system of understanding to what the Bible is, and that's our bibliology. Um, so the result is that we then understand the Bible is both inerrant, there is no error, and also infallible. It's not even capable of teaching error, right. which is a subtle distinction. Yeah. So, so Grudem says that we're developing a system on the entire Bible and what the entire Bible has to say. But second in his definition, he states it's figuring out what the whole of the Bible is teaching us today. And, and you mentioned this already. Um, and so this is why, as we we're saying, new systematic theologies come out all the time. Uh, they're seeking to take the fullness of scripture that, but then bring it to bear upon issues of right. today. So an example is theological anthropology, right? So we're gonna develop a systematic understanding of what the Bible says about what it means to be human. Um, and so this, of course, brings all kinds of issues up today about what does yeah. it mean to be human and now a subcategory, human sexuality, for instance. So this gets into the issue of transgenderism. This wasn't an issue 100 years ago, but now all kinds of systematic theologies are coming out because they have to address what does the Bible say about transgenderism. And when I did my sermon in Genesis 1 and 2 yeah. about the creation of man, I dealt with it to a degree in a systematic manner of, of, of then making the application that there's only two genders and I don't care what man 
kind tries to do, or cis kind, or whatever is the right yeah. way to say it now, the Bible is the final say, and it says, I made male and female. Um, and that's a systematic issue that we're addressing. Right. Yeah, um, my kids, um, you know, they have the, the theology by right. Machowski. And so they're singing the songs that Bob Coughlin wrote to it. He made us boy, yeah! He made <laughs> us girl, yeah! And I'm just like, I would have never, right. ever had to learn a song like this when I was little. But girl. now we need, yeah. we need to train our children that and way. And celebrate it. Yes. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and not be ashamed of it, absolutely. So when we're talking about systematic theology, though, what's of utmost importance is that it's not without error. Um, systematic theology is a man-made system by definition. And so we're finite minds attempting to pull all the thoughts of God together from the Bible to address a specific issue. Right. And so since systematic theology by definition is a discipline involving finite, indeed sinful minds, uh, it will always have error at some level. Yeah, systematic theology is in, is errant. The Bible is inerrant. But Correct. how we understand it yeah. will have error. Yeah. So there's three typical areas of systematic theology. Um, and again, we're doing this because we hope it'll be helpful to help you understand the different categories that are addressed in in the study of Scripture. And so in systematic theology, typically, did your seminary have three? We had theology one, two, and three. Now they do theology one, two, three, and four. They do four, okay, at, at your seminary. Yeah. Okay. So I got three. Um, yeah, and, how they and that's what up. I grew up with. Yeah. So theology one will involve... Uh, a prolegomena, which fa- is fancy just a word. word. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just it's a fancy term that means introduction, a word before, literally. Um, and so it's typically giving explanations as to how the systematic theology is being done by that particular author. And it's very important to read the prolegomena because everyone approaches systematic theology differently. And so in a good prolegomena, they're laying out their their methodology, their goals, and their hoped for outcomes with this systematic theology. So if you just jump into it you're probably going to be missing a whole lot of things. So if you're reading uh, systematic theology written by a liberation guy, liberation theology, if it's a good theology, even if I totally disagree (laughs) with it, but if it's well-written, his prolegomena will lay out, here's my presuppositions. And so now as you're reading it, you can read it as a scholar, as a student, aware of what he's doing. Right. Uh, you may not agree with it, but at least now you can do it. And a good theology will always let you know up front, here's my presuppositions. Here's yeah. here's what I'm going for. Absolutely. So so in theology one you have prolegomena, then you'll have bibliology, which is the doctrine of scripture, how we develop the Bible. Um, now why why is that the first one? Because a good theology, all other points of theology is developed from right. the Bible. Um, and so if, if they have a good sound bibliology hopefully the rest of the theology will be relatively right, sound. Right. Um, now, some obviously, especially more of your liberal theologians, they're not holding to an inerrancy view of the scripture or something like that. And so it's going to affect the rest of their development. You'll then have theology proper, which is just that great study of the person of God, his character's attributes, um, and then typically angelology and demonology. And then for me, we learned also Satanology and because we separated that. But again... Yeah, being kind of piddly there. Um, and then theology two normally will be the Christology, which is a study of Christ specifically. Uh, and you'll see how it's lumped together with mm-hmm. anthropology, the study of man. This is just talking about the 
the nature of man, the creation of man. It's not getting to his sin because that's the next one. Hamartiology will now talk about the fall of man and the nature. So that becomes really important. And then ultimately soteriology, the doctrine of salvation. So you can see why that's naturally lumped. The work of Christ uh, with the man, his fall, and his salvation. Yeah. And then theology three will deal with pneumatology, doctrine of the Holy Spirit, ecclesiology, doctrine of the church, and then eschatology, doctrine of end times or last things. And again, all those interplay, those three categories, which is why they're lumped together. And so why I like the the layout of three is because in each one, you have one person of the Godhead. Right. Usually being, so in, in theology proper though, you're gonna deal with the full Trinity, there's also an emphasis on God the Father as creator. Right. Right. And then theology to Christology, savior, and then pneumatology, right. he who gives life. Um, so so there, that's your basic layout of systematic theology. There's other areas of study typically categorized as systematic theology. Uh, ethics yep. would be one. Uh, that gets into divorce, remarriage, se- sexual ethics, beginning and end of life issues. So in vitro fertilization, euthanasia, uh, apologetics, the nature of how do you defend the faith. Um, and these are all just different approaches to each of these. But And we'll, we'll have to do uh, yeah. a few episodes on that. So there's different kinds of, apolo- you know, different methodologies, which we're not going to get into here, but just know that apologetics isn't just apologetics. Yeah. There's different approaches to apologetics. Huge. Yeah. Huge. So that's kind of a basic rundown of systematic theology. It's these, these big foundational issues, again, developed from the scriptures where you're pulling from other disciplines to figure out what the whole Bible is saying and then bringing it to bear on a particular issue of the day within a particular context. All right, so the next one then is biblical theology. You you give the definitions. Okay, there's a few of these. Um, so Geherdus Voss, who's- Is that how you say yeah, that? Well, that's how I'm saying it. Okay. Um, yeah, so he's considered actually the father of modern biblical theology. I didn't know that. Yeah, so his definition is, and it's totally unhelpful. Actually, all these are very unhelpful, (laughs) um, which just shows how difficult it is to define. But he says biblical theology is that branch of exegetical theology, (laughs) which deals with the process of self-revelation of God deposited in the Bible. It's a study which moves along the axis of redemptive history. Well, and that's getting into Reformed theology that we talk about in another podcast. Yeah. Right there. You can, you, I know some of those terms, you know them. Yeah. And so you know already, okay, there's this a, a Reformed guy. Yeah, yep. there's a lot of stuff yeah. running. Um, Don Carson, D.A. Carson's definition biblical theology seeks to uncover and articulate the unity of all the biblical texts taken together, resorting primarily to the categories of those texts themselves. That is very unhelpful to a person who has no idea what biblical theology is. I mean, it sounds like he's defining the terms with the terms. Um, And then Tom Schreiner, um, biblical theology asks, what themes are central to the biblical writers in their historical context and attempts to discern the coherence of such themes? Again, I mean... So we have shed no light (laughs) on this subject. (laughs) Right. but the point, though, is is it's very hard to summarize in a simple definition. But the reason for that is just due to the nature of what biblical right. theology is. Um, and so, essentially, this is my attempt. It's, it's the idea of tracing out a biblically stated theme of Scripture from Genesis to Revelation and then seeing how it develops throughout redemptive history, but as the Bible's being written, as it's unfolding through progressive history. See, I think that's a good definition. Yeah, I mean, it well, makes sense to me. I think you should write Quote. to Dr. Carson. I mean, he was your professor. 
and just say, look, oh. Don, let's talk. <laughs> Listen, the Don, the Don, the Don. <laughs> yeah. Um, but then biblical theology, that theme that you're tracing from Genesis to Revelation typically climaxes in the person of Jesus Christ. And so here in biblical theology, you're using biblical terms so right. and you're tracing these themes out. So for instance, the theme of kingdom or the theme of rest or temple or love or word of God. So Trinity is not a biblical term. That, right. That's a theological term. Yeah. But these are taking biblical terms and then tracing out the theme and development of those terms. So just by way of example, let me just try and give a very quick summarized biblical theology of rest. I know I just pulled a random theme of rest. Okay, so, so here's kind of how it would work itself out. Uh, in, in Genesis 1 and 2, there's a parallel statement after each creation day. And that statement is, there was evening and there was morning a first day, right? And then right, there was evening right, and there right. was morning a second day, so on and so forth. Um, but once you get to the seventh day, which is Genesis chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, it said, God blessed the seventh day and then rests. Um, and so what's interesting is that because there's there's been this cadence after each creation day, evening and morning, the reader is expecting something obvious at the end of the seventh right. day. Um, um, and so after six days of creation and those six parallel statements we're expecting to read, there was evening and there was morning, a seventh day. But the reality is it's not there. No. It's just completely left out. And so what you begin to discover, especially as you, you trace out the theme of rest in the Bible, is that the seventh day now then appears to be perpetual. Um, right. th there's an everlasting rest, so to speak. Um, and so the next time you observe any rest, rest language in the scriptures, it's in reference, of course, to the Sabbath, which is inherently bound up with that seventh day of rest of God um, in Genesis. And then after that, you encounter the Exodus, where the nation of Israel is led out of Egypt to the promised land, which, of course, is referred to as the land of rest explicitly. Um, and then in Psalm 95, uh, the writer there is picking up on the language of rest when God proclaims um, these words. He says, therefore, I swore in my anger, truly, they shall not enter my rest. Now, what's really interesting about that passage in the Psalms is that by the time Psalm 95 is written, Israel had been in the promised land, the land of rest, for some time. Right. And so the question is, how is God now able to say, truly, they shall not enter my rest? Um, they're already in the rest. They're in that, that promised land. And so what you have to conclude, I mean, I don't know how else you would conclude, but you have to conclude that in some way there's a greater rest that's being spoken of then in Psalm 95. Right, so that that rest that they were enjoying in the promised land, which is the land of rest, and they were remembering in the Sabbath day, that was not the end. Right. Yeah. It, it, it's, it's moving still towards right, something right, else. Right. Um, and so what you end up having to conclude is that it must be speaking of, of that seventh day rest in some way, that, that perpetual right, rest, right. right? So so once we get to the New Testament, Psalm 95 is, is picked up by the writer of the Hebrews in chapters three and four. Um, and and he, he uses Psalm 95 in a very complex way that I'm not gonna get into, but he's, he's nevertheless tapping into the theme of rest and making a point in one chapter regarding salvation and then another chapter where he's expecting um, some kind of godly living. He's using it in a moral sense. Right. Um, and, there, and there's other passages that, that pick up on the theme of rest that we can talk about. But I, I would say the payoff then of biblical theology is it's showing the unity of the entire Bible, that there's actually one author and one point and one goal behind the entire scriptures, and that the Bible's connected in driving somewhere along in this access known as redemptive history. And so when you get into Matthew chapter 11 then where Jesus is speaking, you come, I think, to the pinnacle of the theme of rest, but it's in the person and the work of Jesus Christ himself. 
And so he makes that very famous statement, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, right? And so here's where you see the value of, again, a biblical theology. Um, as you're tracing out the theme, you can begin to understand the kind of rest that Jesus is inviting us into. Um, and I'd argue he's actually speaking of that seventh day rest in Genesis. Yet, listen to sermon after sermon and it gets missed. Right, yeah. Um, but it's speaking of that, that eternal rest, right? Right, right? That only God gives, um, that we're partaking in with God himself. And so it's this divine everlasting rest that's been going on since the seventh day of creation. Um, and so when in Genesis, it says that there was no morning or evening after the seventh day. Um, the reason for that is because God is still in this rest and will be in this rest perpetually. Um, and that if you're in Christ, one day you're gonna share in that rest, that seventh day rest. And so to your point, this is why, you know, we get all these psychological sermons on Matthew 11, where Jesus is just, you know, he's inviting you into a rest from things like your anxiety yeah. or your depression. Um, but it, short of developing a biblical theology, I don't know what else you're going to preach on when you get to Matthew 11. I mean, what else does rest mean to you except yeah. from my personal Comfort struggles? Yeah. Right. But if you have a biblical theology, Matthew 11 becomes incredibly rich and profound and something far more eternal. It, my mind just went to another passage, you know, if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation yeah. Yeah. and then gets into the idea of new behold yeah. um, now my brain just went uh, the old has passed old things have passed away and behold all things have become new right. but it, literally that word things is not there it's just the old has passed away and the new has yeah. come that's a whole nother uh, biblical term or two terms of that which belongs to the old and the new and we, we talk about see you're not a prostitute anymore see that's all gone. It's like, yeah, that may be true, but that's not the point. Right. It's something far better than that. Yeah. Far that you, more we profound. now participate in something that the Bible talks about as new. And if you can trace that out, you can really enter into a time of worship. Yeah. So anyhow. Yeah. So, I mean, to summarize it, biblical theology is simply tracing out a theme of Scripture. Now, you can do it from Genesis to Revelation, um, or you can even do it within one book. So... Song of Solomon. I'm going to trace out a biblical theology of Song of Solomon if you want. Um, or you can do it within a single author. So you can, for instance, develop the theme of, theme of suffering in Peter's epistles or trace out the theme of love as John understands it and he uses it in his gospel and epistles um, in, in distinction to maybe how Paul uses the term love. So there's all sorts of ways to do biblical theology, but the point to understand is you're developing a particular theme along a temporal axis. Again, in contrast to systematic theology, which doesn't care at all about time. Um, the Trinity is the Trinity, whether you're in Genesis or you're in Romans or Revelation. Right. And and I think D.A. Carson did a great book. I think it's called The Difficult Doctrine of the Love of God. Mm -hmm. And that's a biblical theology. Yeah. And he's just tracing out that doctrine of God's love and, and how it looks and how it works. Uh, a book we would highly recommend. Yeah. So those are your two big ones, but another one that's still rather major, and it's actually very important, is the historical theology, which uh, Greg Allison, um, he would define it this way, the study of the interpretation of scripture and the formulation of doctrine by the church of the past. So it's how we interpret the scripture and how the church throughout history, its history has developed um, that doctrine. So what what's the history of thought on a particular topic? This becomes really helpful um, when you're trying to figure out issues related to baptism or something like that, or um, 
the priesthood of believers or clergy. Uh, you know, how, how did we all of a sudden end up with the Catholic Church and you're not allowed to marry and right. somehow they're this or that? You can actually trace it uh, historically. Uh, so when you're looking at, like, for instance, how the doctrine of the Trinity has developed and re been refined over time, that's different than a biblical theology and how it's going to work on the doctrine of God, yeah. um, and it's going to be different than the systematic theology. Or maybe you're going to look at the different ways the idea of the atonement Which was we did. viewed. Yeah, and we, we did. did. Yeah. Um, and that was just, again, a very important process of figuring out exactly what happened at the cross. Um, it's taking a particular topic, and that's usually out of a systematic theology, and then see the different ways people understood it. Um, and so, like Greg Allison's very important book on historical theology, it's oftentimes a companion to Grudem's yeah, systematic theology. It's a helpful tool. Yeah, you should. I would say that if you're going to look at systematic theology, you should have something like Allison. He does such. He's such yeah. a good writer. Well, and the the publishers of his um, on purpose organized it. I didn't know so that. So that it would be in lockstep with Grudem's systematics. So if you're reading through like Christology, well, go to Allison's. Historical theology. And really, the Christology section is, is is a historical theology on Christology. Now, how did you know that? Because you knew Dr. Allison, and he told you, or um, maybe I don't remember. Which one are you talking about? It's the big green one, historical theology. <laughs> I mean, it's a honking thing. It's the oh, same okay. size as Grudem's Systematics. Okay. Yeah, I think it was published in like 2011 or something. That's very very interesting. Um, so historical theology is such an important area. Um, and it's actually the re the fact that we don't know our historical theology is one of the reasons the church just goes right back into yeah. all of its trouble uh, because it refuses to learn historical theology. So we just keep repeating the same old heresies over and over again. And this is where when people who refuse to be trained or trained or refuse to study these things, they then decide they're going to step into the pulpit, they end up stunting the church because they're not coming from this deep right. historical wellspring of thought and recognizing that they're, they're battling things that they don't need to battle over. Yeah. They don't know the history. They're not controlled by truth and uh, error. Um, and so they're tossed everywhere, just back and forth whatever sounds good at the moment. And so we end up going back and back and back over these same old controversies. And it, it does get tiring, but it's oftentimes just being lazy. Right. Or, or, or they never got told to be trained. Yeah. Just get trained. This didn't happen overnight. Right. And you yeah, should I mean, understand So, it. I mean, we belong to the church, right? This 2,000-year-old, I mean, I would argue it's yes. 2,000. <laughs> I don't need a Reformed guy correcting me. Um, and so there, there's a history in that big church, though. And so if we're not aware of that, we're just going to repeat the same stuff that people have literally died for already in past. So uh, that, that's historical theology. Another area, another discipline is called dogmatic theology. Um, and dogmatic theology is any teaching that's held to as the official teaching of a church or an organization. And so this will be similar to a, a systematic theology. It, it usually looks the same or it can look the same. Um, and that it's interested in what the entire Bible teaches on any given topic. But the difference is that it focuses on what a particular church or religious organization thinks on a particular topic or officially affirms the Bible to be teaching about the right. topic. 
Um, so dogmatic theology became really popular during the Reformation when they were reforming from, from, the, from Roman Catholicism. Um, and so the Protestant reformers, for instance, were seeking to clarify distinctions between them as protesters and that which the Catholic faith was holding to as dogma. Which is what we did when we talked about the, the three aspects of saving faith. Yeah. That was one of those things because what makes your faith one that saves you? Right. That's probably not theologically <laughs> said well, but I think people understand what I'm saying. Yeah. But. So, so dogmatic theology can be anything from a si simple statement of faith, like the Baptist Faith and Message 2000, which is SBC's most recent, right. to a 1689 confession, so on and so forth, all the way up to something like Karl Barth's six million word, 14 volume work, which I think took him 35 years Whew. to develop called Church Dogmatics. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's just a massive thing. Carl hold a few doors open with that. <laughs> okay, and then there's another huge area that's really neat. Um, I like this. It's called practical theology. Uh, sometimes you'll call it pastoral theology. Um, here it's the discipline of pu putting academic theology into practice. That's all it means. Mm -hmm. Okay, so we learn all this stuff. Now... What do you do with it? Yeah, so yeah. what? Um, uh, there's areas that are common in it. You deal with the nature of homiletics, um, the nature of mission or evangelism or counseling. These are all practical uh, theology sections. So would, good would homiletics is just preaching. Right. Yeah. Um, would hermeneutics also fall into this? No, that's a, that's a, yeah. Um, no, that's a different one. Okay. Well, good practical theology always begins with that academic development from the scripture. So you have that before you can do practical theology, you need to have a sound systematic theology, right? I mean, if and and a, and a good grasp of biblical theology. If you don't, then you're again you're all over the place. And so I'll, I'll just call out a guy. He he's been trained, Andy Stanley. He's been trained in systematic theology out of the Southern, I believe, mm -hmm. but. When you listen to how it practically works itself out in his preaching, he abandons it all, right. um, or frequently abandons it all, um, because there's not a connection. He's just tr trying to meet the felt needs and the mo of the moment. Um, so poor practical theology will tend to focus on those pragmatics, the methodology, but it's not first developing a sound theological foundation from the scriptures. So that's our point of why we said in our podcast about the church planter as a theologian, right. you shouldn't be running out there and saying, plant a church and I don't need any training. I'm not going to say a man can't do that, but that church will never grow beyond your knowledge. And so remember that one time we had a person petition us to support him in the mission field. And we said, we will support you, but only if you first go to seminary. And he was like, yeah, but people need Christ. I'm like, there will always be people who need Christ, but they need a man who's capable of giving them counsel and, and disciple them into maturity. And if you don't have a sound theological foundation, you will falter. And we, we just rejected him. He went off into the mission field, ultimately came back home and never accomplished what he meant. But that's why we're just brutal about that. And that's what we're saying to our church planters. You want to be sent out by Missio Dei Fellowship, you got to be trained yeah. uh, so that you're not, you're not 
already hamstrung. Um, so some examples, exegetical preaching versus a relevant applicational type of preaching. Expositional preaching, again, that's a new popular word because a survey said that people want expositional preaching. So now magically everyone's claiming to do expositional preaching. Um, but expositional preaching is what's demonstrated actually in the scripture. Uh, a sound theology of expositional preaching that has been developed uh, over time and time again. Because um, it's in the Bible. Right. Yeah. You're looking like, oh, that's what they're doing. They're just drawing out from the text. Yeah. Uh, relevant or application-oriented preaching has very little theology behind it. It's not built off the scriptures. Um, more or less, it's just modern pragmatics. And I'll be mean again. You want to see this in action, read The Purpose Driven Life yeah. uh, by Rick Warren. You could. There is no need for him to quote the scriptures mm -hmm. because he's not drawing from those scriptures. He is just making pragmatic points at work, and he's then sticking some scripture in to Christianize it. But it's in no way, shape, or form is it an expositionally sound book, and it's full of error as a result. Right. Um, that's why applicational preaching is not proven in the long term to ever be ultimately transformative because you're only touching for the moment, how they feel at that moment. Surface, yeah. Right. Yeah. Another example of that would be uh, biblical counseling versus a psychology or psychotherapeutic approach to counseling. Um, you know, so biblical theology has an enormous amount of, I think, theological support and foundation, um, whereas some of the more you know psychoanalytical approaches have been developed from modern or secular theories that yeah. then seek to find scriptural support. Right. Um, and so the point, though, is that one begins with God's revelation and seeks to develop a practice from God's revelation, like expositional preaching or biblical counseling. The other begins somewhere outside of Scripture and then seeks to make scriptural support of that practice in some way. And so, so one's a good practical theology. The other's it's a practical theology, but it's, it's a bad one. Right. Yeah. Right. Uh, how about natural theology? Yeah. So natural theology, then, is, is another kind of theology. Um, and a definition of this would be a branch of philosophy and theology which attempts to either prove God's existence, define God's attributes, or derive correct doctrine based solely from human reason and observations of the natural world. This is Fabley. Yeah, this is definitely Fabley. Um, so this is, this is in contrast to seeking to understand the person and the attributes of God, as well as his plans and purposes, from his special revelation alone, which is the scriptures, of course. Um, you, you know, the reformers' understanding of sola scriptura meant that they thought God's person and purposes could only be understood through special revelation. Right. And they're going to pick up on things like Proverbs 3, 5, Psalm 147. I won't read them, but they're, they're, they're seeking to develop these understandings of God and that God is only knowable through his self-revelation. Um, whereas, whereas a guy like Thomas Aquinas, on the other hand, thought God could be proved and believed in through reason alone. Um, and so he argued for the existence of God based on logic and reason and evidences of, of God's existence. And they're still used today all the time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'll make the teleological or cosmological argument for God and somehow, wow, it's like you don't prove anything there. Right. Um, notable proponents, if you're a person who reads theology or you're familiar with these names, you may not know this, but notable proponents of natural theology is Alvin Plantiga, a famous apolog uh, apologetic. Uh, William Lane Craig, who's getting weird. Um, yeah, they always weird. do end up. Yeah, if they unless they, yeah, unless they grow. Uh, I'll just leave. I, I the, usually the trajectory ends up going bad. Right. 
Um, Because it's based on things outside of Scripture. They don't have that central conviction. Right. Um, C.S. Lewis, even. I mean, this is mere Christianity, right? Everyone praises mere Christianity. But that's an entire book developed from his understanding of God's moral law. So he's writing at a time in which the war is going on. And so he's saying both Christians and atheists can look at Hitler and see that he's evil. Yeah. Right, and so now he's appealing to people's consciences and hearts, yeah. yeah, stuff like that. So he's a he's a natural theologian. J.P. Moreland, Paul Tillich, which he drives me nuts, Emil Brunner. But notable theologians writing against natural theology would be like Cornelius Van Til, um, Karl Barth, Greg Bonson, these kinds right. of guys. Uh, now we have a jet flying directly overhead, so we'll kind of mumble and grumble a little bit while it goes its way. Uh, and then another frustrating one that's out there today is process theology. Um, classic process theology deals with the doctrine of God and his nature stating, oh golly, <laughs> I, okay, I'm going to say this, but anyone tell me what this means. Stating that God is dipolar, developing and a developing being. Now, if you want to have fun, look up the word dipolar theology or phrase in Wikipedia and just have fun just wandering around in that morass of idiocy. But basically, on one hand, God is absolute and unchanging. He's independent and unsurpassable in his perfection. Yet, this is where it gets into this dipolar. On the other hand, God is relative, changing, dependent, and always surpassing himself in his perfections. So that sounds like a contradiction of terms. Yeah, you think? But but, But they're trying to hold them together in saying... It's like a magnet. You have a positive and a negative side, but they're both equal sides of this in part of this mag. It just gets really re- weird and it, makes it, zero it's something sense. that only yeah, yeah it, you're not going to draw this out of the scripture. But you boil it down. He's constantly growing. God's responding to creation itself. It becomes then a form of pantheism, where all of creation, in yeah, some way or say, another, yeah. becomes part of God. Panentheism. Pan, oh, you're yeah. right. I, I said that wrong. Panentheism. Yeah. Another fun word to look up and then ignore. Um, this, of course, then violates that creator-creature distinction that the Bible makes. It always communicates God in the process of learning. This is where open theism comes yep. in. Yep. Um, and that's a heresy, and yet the Evangelical Theological Society could not denounce it. Nope. Um, and in part, it's depend, uh, God then becomes dependent on the world for his being and perfection. But this is out there, and this is creeping in in some very insidious ways within the evangelical church today. Yep. Uh, it's, it's developed out of a philosophy and a reason that goes well outside the bounds of Scripture. I would say it's just poison. Um, it always ends up in a strong liberal bent. And frankly, just annoying. Yes, it is. And we've dealt with people like this. But it sells books. It sells books and makes you feel very superior. Yep. But it's wrong. Yeah. So so then the the next category would be just what I'll call textual studies. Um, This is dealing with the text of Scripture itself. So here's where something like hermeneutics comes into play. Uh, And so a a decent definition of hermeneutics, it's, it's the goal of uncovering the meaning of a biblical author's intent. That's all hermeneutics means. Um, and so it will involve things like word studies, historical studies, that, um, that is the background and the setting of a given text. So in the Gospel of Luke, culturally, what's, what's happening there? Um, it involves grammar, understanding genre, and then also issues of continuity and discontinuity, how you understand 
the testaments working together, things like that. Um, but the, the goal always is to think the author's thoughts after them. Right. So it's a good and very helpful and necessary discipline. But depending on the hermeneutical lens, lens that you choose is yours, it will drive you in certain directions. Absolutely. So it's also a very important one. If you say, well, I've just read one, Bernard Rams maybe, um, okay, but understand that's just one way and you should at least be aware of the other ones going on. So that Because every, every good theology you're reading, he has a hermeneutic behind yeah, it. And absolutely. if you don't know, and if he doesn't lay that clearly out in his prolegomena, right. um, you're left to figure it out on your own. But once they tell you that, now, even if you don't like what he's saying, at least you can understand why right. he's saying yep. that. So we, when we were in Ethiopia, when you were teaching, I was reading the book, and then when I was teaching, you were reading the book, and I think we read the whole book in those settings, but it was, what's his face writing on Genesis? Uh, Walton? Oh, yeah, John Walton. Oh. Um, and it, I mean, he, he, it was awful. It was terrible, but he was a good writer because he he laid out his hermeneutic in the beginning, yep. and then both you and I were like, okay, the rest of the book, now he's just going to work everything through that lens. Yeah. So if you buy into that lens, you're going to love his book and his argument and his writing, which so many do, but if you disagree with that presupposition or that lens, you just dismiss the whole thing. That's a great illustration, yeah. Um, another one would be exegesis, a uh, fancy term, um, but this falls within the broader category of, of hermeneutics. But this is still textual studies. Still textual studies, yeah. Uh, this focus tends to focus on the grammar and the syntax of a text. So. Grammar, most people understand syntax is just how are phrases working with each other. So is this prepositional phrase modifying this verb or this verb? That's fun stuff. Yeah, I love it. I do too. <laughs> um, <laughs> and, and the best place to do this is always with the original text itself. That is with the scriptures, with the Greek or the Hebrew. Because exegesis based off English is simply the exegesis of a translator's interpretation yeah. of the Greek or Hebrew. Right. Um, and so, so if, if you can learn the original and do your exegesis there, you're going to get closer, I think, to understanding the author's thought. Um, and it's an invaluable skill for anyone seeking to be a teacher or preacher of the well, scriptures. And I'll give a, my famous little illustration. You had to listen to this when you were younger. Um, when I was in seminary, my, my advisor, uh, I had a lot of extra electives. And so I thought, because he was the professor over theology, I asked him, what, what do you want me to do with all these extra electives? And he's, he, I thought he's going to tell me, read theology, which I love. And he, he made me covenant with him that I would do nothing but take Greek and Hebrew exegesis courses, which I'm like, oh, kill me now. But his argument was good. And it was, Matt, if you will uh, not learn your languages, then you will always be dependent on another man's exegesis yep. for your theology. But if you become strong in your exegetical skills, then your theology will naturally develop as you deal with the text. And you can interact with these theologians at an exegetical level. And, and, and he's right. It's proven itself over these last 20 plus years over and over again that I'm now able to read a man and know whether I can agree with him or not simply by how he's dealing with the text. Yeah, So it's absolutely. a huge, huge issue. And then a final one is just, it's critical theory. Um, so here you got like higher criticism, so historical criticism, redaction uh -huh. criticism, and then a lower criticism, which would be like textual criticism, uh, stuff like that. So I'm not gonna get into these because most people, I would even say most serious Bibles students 
never interact at this level. Most people, even in seminary, unless they're in the higher parts of seminary, aren't dealing with things like this. Um, but the, the important point to understand is, is most of the critical disciplines are liberal attempts to understand how the Bible is really put together. Because they're, they're denying a supernatural aspect. Exactly. Yeah. So, like, you know, you can parallel that, for instance, with, like, critical theory today that we're dealing with in our culture. Yeah. Um, you can't just take something for what it says yeah. or what's happening. You have to read between... There's a whole the, the, yeah. large historical context. Yeah, and, uh, and so you, you got to get to really understand what's being said or what people are doing through certain... So it's the same way when it comes to the scriptures. You can't just take the scriptures on face value. Um, they would say that there's there's more going on that you have to try and find out. And, of course, it gets into all the weird stuff like JDP with Genesis. Or I was Pentateuch just going to say that. Um, that it wasn't Moses who wrote it, but it's a bunch of different kinds of authors who just kind of stitched... Yeah, that, they that's redaction. They were called together. redactors. Yep. They took yeah. all these different disparate things, and they did it a long time later. So, right. it, so anything that looks like it's fulfilled prophecy, it wasn't because it was written afterwards. So, of course, they were right with their prophecy. But it's all it's when you read a theology, uh, I mean, a commentary on Genesis, it will come out really quickly if they're starting to mention the J author or the E author yep. or the P author. Yep. Author, it's, and that's helpful too when you're reading commentaries. Yep. So you know their presupposition. And yep. like like WBC, Word Biblical Commentaries, oh, are just horrible. notorious for that. Yep. Um, All right, so bring it to a close. Yeah, so this, this is just a basic survey. Um, theology is always being done at every single level. New theologies, as we said, come out weekly. And as long as issues keep changing in the world, so will theology. And frankly, it has to. Um, the reason for that is because the Bible is able to address every issue for life and good theologians are able to bring the Bible to bear on everything. And so our recommendation would be to establish a firm foundation by reading good systematic theologies, biblical theologies, and historical theologies. The rest of them doesn't matter. Um, unless you want to be a preacher or teacher, then you should get some good textual skills. Um, a wise approach is to start with older theological models um, and then build out from there as you as you learn. Um, they've stood the test of time. Yeah, that's the key. Yeah. Uh, we'd also say never tolerate your theology demanding the text to mean something. Um, but also, unless you're well-grounded, don't abandon a classic understanding of a, of a passage simply because you heard a sermon or some teacher just said, it's always been said this way, but I think this. It's like, right. well, based on what? Um, so if you have a pretty good, if you have a firm foundation, you can sniff out poor theology and you're not going to be tossed to and fro by every new theological fad right. that's out there. Um, but neglecting to be grounded in sound theology is how, as we're saying, modern evangelical churches become what it is today. It's ignorant of the past and pretty much illiterate when it comes to the Bible. Yeah. So, and as we said, if you're going to be a teacher or preacher, it's important that you develop some sound hermeneutical and exegetical skills. It'll set you up for a life yep. of successful ministry. And, and if you're not going to be a teacher or preacher, then... Arrange yourself under a man who's been well-trained and has proven himself time and time again to be grounded in, in sound theology, but also the scripture. Um, because you're going to be learning from somebody who's not, like you said, being tossed to and fro um, at, at the newest fad. Hope this was helpful. It's kind of dry in some ways, but... Um, a lot of people just don't know how theology comes about, and so they read something, and they just start guessing. Hopefully, yeah. this helps them a little bit better. 
about that person that's sitting under the guy, though, and having to kind of criticize, not criticize like being mean, but like in their mind, criticize his preaching and see if he's... Critiquing, maybe, you mean. They're from the same root, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, nobody, re- like you taught us a really difficult book, and it was the first time I ever had someone teach me to engage with a book where you're not just like, you know devouring it you're actually questioning it and seeing where he's coming from the author and stuff like that and doing that with someone who's preaching a sermon you have to be trained to have such a discerning ear you know yeah it it's hard um again our seminaries are cranking out such bad preachers nowadays because they're not grounding them one in the languages that's Mm -hmm. becoming more and more an option and it's hard work so people just choose not to um, and also the theology is just weak. But um, I would I would say to anyone, the one of the simplest ways to look is how grounded is the preaching that they're listening in the text. And I mean literally grounded. How right. often are they looking down yeah. and seeing that what the person is saying is there? Yeah. Um, and if they're teaching a Bible study, the pastor or teacher should be pointing them. What does the text say? Now, and he, he might let them... In light of what I've just shown you, what does that that phrase there mean? And they should be tearing the text apart yeah. and helping them learn to see how the text is put together. If it's not, if it's going right away into application or something like that, um, then you you you're likely not in sound teaching. Or um, they're just they're they're talking above your head. And they're throwing out terms, but not True. explaining things, yeah. which to me is a clear sign they don't actually know what they're talking about. And I think it's MacArthur who says it's it's really easy to sound confusing. Yeah, <laughs> um, it's really hard to be clear and teach and preach at a level that everybody understands, even though you're dealing with a complex topic. Yeah, it's gonna it. Good teaching is always gonna go slower. It it has to yeah. because you're not you're never content with the flyover. Um, because there's a time to maybe give a flyover at first, but then you have to circle back around and let the text work itself out in front of the people. And so I would say that many people today are just in weak churches. And um, so by going out and picking up a Grudem or a Hodge or an older theology, like you said, and beginning to read it and then comparing what you're reading to what you're hearing especially if you know what the what book if the guy's even in a book right um, yeah you know if That's you're talking sign. about the hilltop experiences and it's a five part cutesy or what we, we were just ranting about uh, at the movies yeah. Um, that's the new thing. We're going to, if if you have a church and you're in a church that's showing film clips, you're in a bad church. I'm just, if that's the basis of their sermon, you're in a bad church. Or if they're, you don't need to bring your Bible because they'll, they'll put the Bible up on the screen sure. for you. You're in a bad church. Yeah. I don't care what you want to say. That man is not teaching you to to look at your scripture and learn your scripture. Yeah. If you're only looking at one verse here and then running over to another one, now, there's a topical style of sermons that has value at time, but in the long run, if you've been there for six months and you find it's topic after topic after topic, yeah. then you're in a, in a weak church. It's not teaching you to look at the scripture. And so you're always taking these passages, usually out of context, or they're never being explained in their context. Yeah. And, and so you're never learning the scripture itself. Yeah.